Hey, everybody, and welcome in to another episode of the Eye on the Tigers podcast here at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. I'm Ben Fredrickson, joined, as always, by my colleague Dave Matter from the Columbia Bureau. And we're here to break down an eventful week in college football. We've got some news as it relates to the COVID pandemic in uh, Columbia and how it's affecting the Missouri Tigers football team. Um, also, some specifics on that team, you know, some, some questions of interest. Quarterback, offensive line, we're going to dive into some some actual football X's and O's here. And then take a look at college football at large as uh, the season lifts off um, in various stages with some postponements across the country as college football tries to figure out how it can look as normal as possible this fall. We'll get into all of that with Dave. First, I want to tell you a little bit about the sponsors who make this podcast possible. Okay, Dave, uh, let's start right away with the, the news at Mizzou. Eli Drinkwitz meets with the, the media this week and says, hey, here's the latest. We've got four positives. We've got a significant amount more players held out for contact tracing. Um, this seems to be the most uh, turbulence Missouri has had regarding the football team and COVID. Where do things stand and, and how much of a setback is this for Mizzou with less than three weeks now before that first game against Alabama? Yeah, I think it's a a moderate concern. I mean, it's going it, to much more so if, if things uh, get worse from here. And if, if those other 10 players turn up positive, because then you can probably add some more contact tracing and, and maybe find some more, or maybe even some staff. So you don't want to, um, you don't want to hyperventilate about these things. You, you don't want to like, you know, announce that the season is over and say, Oh, it's not going to work. You know, this is, this is it. He even said on Tuesday when he met with, reporters on zoom he's like we, we knew this was going to happen we hoped it didn't we didn't know the numbers but um this is kind of how this works and once students came back to campus the teams were probably going to see i don't i don't think spike is a fair word but they were going to see an increase and as of saturday going into missouri scrimmage uh they had i think two players positive and three others in quarantine but they were expecting all of them back by the weekend well then you know, five turned into 14. And as of last night, some of those other 10 were also awaiting test results. So four, it could be more than four by, um, you know, by midweek. So we don't really know. He didn't seem uh, panicked or anything like that. Uh, he didn't, not overly concerned, but you, you got, you want to get a handle on this. He said that they, what the tracing uh, revealed to them, and it's never a hundred percent accurate, but they don't believe any of it transmission happened within the team facility, this is, a lot of this is roommates. And anytime someone does test positive, whether they have symptoms or not, uh, their roommates end up being in quarantine also, just because those are the ones who come in high risk, close contact with them. So this is kind of the reality. It's a better situation than what we've seen in some other schools. Tennessee couldn't even have their scrimmage over the weekend because they had 30 something players, maybe even 40 in quarantine. Now, not all of those were positive, but at least you got to keep them away from the field and away from everybody else. We don't know what a lot of teams are doing because they're not unlike Eli Drinkowitz. They're not coming out necessarily and, and publicizing what their numbers are. I suspect that might change a little bit the closer we get to the season, but, but maybe not. I mean, if he feels like they have nothing to lose by just being honest, it's not like he's saying who the players are or what position group they're even come from. So um I, I appreciate the transparency, at least from, you know, our, our beat writers uh, perspective. Well, it is interesting that it comes on a, the same week where you hear Oklahoma's Lincoln Riley say, we're no longer going to talk about any of this stuff. Yeah. And they're, they're, they're claiming it's a competitive, you know, a competitive issue 
which you know, injuries are often treated that way, but injuries are also not contagious and, right. and not part of a public health conversation. So it's interesting to see if that will, that logic will hold up at a public university. I'm with you. I appreciate Drinkwood's kind of laying out the foundation of what they're dealing with here. Um, and this is, you know, when you look around the country, this is going to be happening this fall. Um, I yeah. think we will see games affected by these numbers. I think we will see schedule changes made. We're already seeing it. Um, you know, the college football schedule at large started last Saturday with some minor games, but, you know, you saw, you know, a Navy team that, that took the field and looked unprepared to play in part because it had, had these weird practices and its coach admitted it as much. Um, you saw already this weekend, some games have been rescheduled and some of the big 12 games that have been scheduled have been pushed back or, or shelled because of COVID outbreaks. What do you make of, I guess, college football's kind of not yet full launch yet, but, but attempts to get off the ground here. There's been some, some hurdles already. Yeah. Some of the problems are these non-conference games and this is somewhat behind the reasoning when the big 10 initially decided it was only going to play conference games before they shut everything down. And the same with the SEC, because they wanted to play teams that were working under the same protocols and same standards for testing and all of that. And when you play a non-conference game, obviously you're playing somebody that is maybe doing things a little bit differently. And I think that's been some of the issues with some of these big 12 games that have to be pushed back. Also, you look at it like this, you know, this is why the SEC wanted to wait until they play games and, you know, not starting until the final weekend of September, uh, just to kind of give, let these things occur on campuses where these numbers are going to go way up and they continue to go way up in Columbia and we're seeing the numbers everywhere else. Um, you know, will they get a handle on it in two weeks? I don't know. I mean, we, we nobody knows how this is going to unfold, but um, you know, these, these conferences that have committed to playing, they are still committed to playing. I mean, it's just, they, they gave themselves some wiggle room by the way that they constructed these schedules with some uh, open dates and just having some flexibility built within. What is the kind of the latest in Columbia, not just terms of Mizzou athletics wise, but just the, the COVID footprint on the region right now? On Saturday, the county, which is where we, you know, get the numbers from Boone County had a single day high for cases. It was 221. Um, the previous high was about three days earlier when it was 168. Uh, and all of these numbers correlate with the age group of the college students, 18 to 22. Those are the highest numbers by far. But, you know, that's the alarming news. The, the good news is, I, I think at last check on Tuesday, there were only 13 hospitalizations in Boone County. Uh, there's been seven deaths and there hasn't been one in a few weeks. So, you know, people are recovering. The students are recovering. I think Mizzou's number, they update this every day now. Mizzou's number on Tuesday for students was in the 650s, over 1,000 now since classes and students came back on August 19th. Um, but 450 of those around that have already recovered. So students are going into, uh, they're going into quarantine once they test and once they report to the county. And for the most part, like we've seen with this age group nationwide, you know, they're recovering, they're getting over it. They still might have some lingering symptoms, um, but it's, it's running, it's running through the campus. There's no doubt about that. As Missouri kind of continues to try to get its grips on this and, and avoid it, I guess the best way is try to 
insulate the football team maybe from the campus as much as possible um, when they're outside the facility is probably what a lot of this comes down to. There are some football topics to discuss as well, too. Now, the, the Tigers have had a scrimmage, Dave, a, a secret scrimmage, if you will. What, what have you been able to kind of glean from how that went and, and in your conversations with folks about, about how things went when they, I guess, probably their most realistic game-like chance to evaluate things that they've had since they've been back on campus this fall? Yeah, really since this coaching staff took over. Right. Yeah, had, since Eli Drinkwitz was hired, yeah. They only had three practices in the spring, and they weren't right. getting yet. They weren't in full pads, really. They might have been in full pads, but they weren't doing a whole lot of scrimmage stuff. Um, I, I, he was he was intrigued. I think he, he felt better about the offense than what he had seen. Uh, they were able to score some touchdowns, running the ball and throwing it. Uh, you know, from, from what I've gathered, uh, it liked what they saw from uh, the quarterbacks. And I, I think it's I think it would be wise to say this is just a, a two man race at this point between uh, between Sean Robinson and Connor Bazelak. They're getting the reps, and I think Robinson is really getting most of the reps with the ones. And uh, I, I thought, from what I understand, the offense, first team offense, much more functional on Saturday. Uh, didn't have penalties, didn't have turnovers. Um, they were able to go up and down the field. Now, maybe that's not doesn't say much for Ryan Walter's defense, but I think that's the side of the ball we should probably have let, fewer concerns about right now, just because there's more there's more known quantities on that side. But it, it was a good day for the offense. Um, you know, I, I'd be I'd be not stunned, but surprised at this point if it's not um, if it's not Sean Robinson as the quarterback. He just has the most experience. I think what he gives this offense in terms of dual threat is uh, really fits into not necessarily Drinkwitz's entire career, but what he did last year at App State where they were kind of a run heavy team. Quarterback was a, a, a mobile guy. He can do a lot of different things with a quarterback back there who can, who can run around, but he's not, he's not Tommy Frazier. He's going to put the ball in the air too. And I, I think he's got, um, you know, that the obvious comparisons are going to be made to Kelly Bryant. That's probably unfair, but that's just the guy we saw most recently. And I think, I think Robinson probably has a better touch, um, and we saw last year this time when we could watch practices and scrimmages, Bryant really struggled throwing the ball, especially kind of that intermediate passing game. And uh, I, I think that could be more of a strength with this offense. And some of that is going to be scheming. I, I just think from what I've watched of Drinkwitz's offense, he gets guys open. Like he just, whether it's putting guys in motion so they can figure out what the defense is, um, a lot of the, the pre-snap shuffling around, the smoke and mirrors that they go through, he will find ways to get playmakers the ball. And um, if he can trust whoever that quarterback is to be accurate, not turn it over and move the chains, then this, this could be a, a functional offense. We know they're, they've got running backs. There's, there's no doubt about that. Tyler Beatty calling himself the most versatile running back in the SEC. I like the confidence there. Um, yeah, Sean Robinson, his, his completion percentage at TCU was pretty high. I think that gets overlooked. He's a dual threat, but he's not just a run. He's not just a run only yeah. quarterback. He had a nice, nice completion percentage in, in the Big Twelve, which is a pass-heavy conference uh, before he he transferred. Um, so interesting take there. What about one of the guys he's hoping to throw to? Um, Damon Hazelton has been. Uh, he's supposed to be a big part of this offense as the grad transfer, but he's been he's been held up here injury-wise. Do you think that yeah. he's going to be in a spot to be able to play? Come Alabama. It's a bit of a mystery there, and this comes with not being able to watch practice. He has not earned his 
jersey number yet as of Saturday, and they haven't announced one since then. Pretty much all of the freshmen have, to this point, gotten their number. He did not scrimmage on Saturday. Uh, he has what Drinkwitz called a soft tissue injury. There could be a number of things. Earlier in camp, he described it as just kind of a lingering thing. So maybe it's maybe they're just holding him out for precaution. But if he hasn't gotten that number yet, um, you know, I think it's a little bit of a red flag. That just means he hasn't been able to do as much in practice to earn that yet. And this is a guy that when he when he committed and transferred, you know, we all kind of thought, okay, here's their, here's their number one guy. Here's their leading receiver because he's done it. He's really the only guy that's done it at a high level at the power five level at Virginia tech. So if he's not available at the start of the season or at any point, that's obviously not good, but they do have other guys. I think it's fair to say Kiki Chisholm has uh, really established himself as um, a starter on the outside. He's the division two transfer that, um, you know, absolute diamond in the rough was down at Angelo state and, um, you know, jumped into the transfer portal and everybody was all over him and Missouri was really fortunate to get him. I think they are going to find ways to get Jalen Knox the ball in more space, a different, more creative ways than what we saw the last couple of years. And you mentioned Tyler Beatty. He, I don't think he'll lead the team in receptions again this year, like he did last year, which was kind of by default, but uh, they will find ways to get him the ball and, and Barrett Bannister. So I'm not going to say they are loaded with playmakers, but I think they have more than maybe what people feared going into the season. A lot of this will depend on how well Sean Robinson likely, or maybe someone else is, is protected. Um, this is an offensive line, Dave, that is, as you mentioned the other day, this was incredible, has three guys who are now in some way, shape or form with an NFL team, whether they're playing or on the practice squad. I mean, they had some quality members leave and they're now welcoming back or, you know, trying to put in three new players into a group of five there. What have you been able to, to find out about the, the shape of the offensive line? You wrote about this um, in this week's post-dispatch, but also just kind of your thoughts on how that's going and, and how that strength will be. Because if for an offense that has a lot of unknowns, it's also got a little bit of an unproven front. Yeah, I, I will say last year, I, I thought they underachieved. There's no doubt about that. But they did have talent and experience and good size. And you, like you mentioned, three guys that are now in the NFL, one on a 53-man roster, and Yassir Durant with the Chiefs, and the two other guys, uh, Castillo and Wallace Sims, who were on practice squads. You know, none of them got drafted, and that, I think that's—I don't think people are shocked by that. But um, good enough to at least get paid to play in some capacity, or at least be on a roster. But you know, this team—they bring back two guys that played a lot last year: Larry Borum, who, who they just moved all over the place, and probably. I don't know. I think to some degree, probably a disservice to these guys when they've got them. But one game at right tackle, one game at right guard, one game at left guard. They just, they just couldn't settle on a on a five, and they couldn't settle on guys to play any of the same positions. And it's just like they were just making it up as they went along. Well, he's no at right tackle. Yeah, yeah. He he's at right tackle now, and I, I think that's his his spot. Case Cook is back at right guard, so you've got two returning veterans on the right side. You plug in Michael Mayetti at center. He's a guy who he led Rutgers in snaps each of the last two years. He's got a lot of mileage on his, on his body, 2000 snaps over that at Rutgers in, in three years. He's one of the most, I, I was doing the math with pro football focus. He's, he's by far one of the most uh, experienced offensive linemen in the whole SEC. And uh, here's the good news. He gave up 
zero sacks in three years at Rutgers, one quarterback hit in three years at Rutgers, and I think only seven penalties. And that's, that's a lot of football he played. And he's a guy that plays pretty clean. You know, he doesn't make those glaring mistakes. Penalties were a big issue for this line the last two years. I just counted them up this morning. 48 penalties the last two years on Missouri offensive linemen. Some of those were offsetting or negated, but that's a lot. A lot of false starts. A lot of false starts and a lot of hold, (laughs) and those kill you on a drive. Um, So, yeah, I I think uh, they're promising at center and the right side. The left side is kind of mystery. Hyron White is a guy who's played – he's probably their fourth most – he definitely is. He's their fourth most experienced lineman. He is out for a while with a shoulder injury. Drinkwitz just said he won't be back for a couple weeks at least. You know, it could be something that lasts longer than that. I think he would be a, a real candidate at left tackle. So instead, they've got Bobby Lawrence out there who is massive. I mean, he is 6'8", 320, just a huge guy from up in St. Joe. Hasn't played a whole lot. I think only like 70 or so college snaps. But right now he's at left tackle. And then Xavier Delgado, another junior, who has played even less than Lawrence, is kind of stationed at left guard. So they've got guys. Uh, we'll see how they play. And uh, even backing up them, they've got a lot of inexperience. I mean, they've got a couple freshmen who have a chance to be on the two deep. Drake Heismeyer from right here in uh, St. Louis area from Francis Howell has got a chance to be their number two center, I think. So, uh, yeah, it's on one hand, not as experienced as last year, but how did last year turn out? Not very great. So sometimes, you know, just being experienced isn't, isn't good enough. Yeah, I like the addition of a of a senior center who yeah. has been around the block a few times too with some of these young guys. I think that'd be that'd be a, a nice thing to have if you uh, if you have to enter some unknown here. And really, that's the best way to describe this season. It's entering the unknown. Right. <laughs> we don't know if we're going to be talking more about football or COVID. Um, we're doing a little bit of both, and we'll continue to do that as Missouri sorts out its way through this. So, Dave, you've done a great job. Stay up with uh, the latest, and I would encourage folks to check out the coverage at stltoday.com. If you're just finding this podcast for the first time, easy to find if you want to subscribe or leave us a review. Go to I on the Tigers podcast, Spotify, Apple Music, whatever you're using to uh, iTunes, I guess is what they actually call that. Whatever you're using to find your podcast, check it out there. And we thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. For Dave, I'm Ben. See you next week.